Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Mary Shelley's Frankenstein opened up a whole new world of science fiction for readers when it was published in 1818. For nearly two centuries, her story of a man-made monster being brought to life through medical experimentation has inspired hundreds of movies and books, countless theological and moral debates, and fear of what terrors science can create when left to its own unchecked curiosity and greed. Did you ever wonder what inspired 18-year-old Mary Shelley to write a gothic horror novel? That story has all the earmarks of a modern-day thriller filled with illicit sex, free love, rumors of drugs, adultery, a candle-lit villa on an alpine lake, a very haunted castle, a mad doctor, a wild dream, two famous English authors, the ghost of a dragon-slaying knight, anatomical experiments, sex in a cemetery, and more. And it all started in a little bookstore in London's East End. Add to this our exclusive interview with Rob Demarest, the paranormal expert who brought his Ghost Hunters international team to the dark mountains of the Bavarian Alps to investigate Frankenstein Castle in Germany just a few years ago. And we've got a whopper of a story for you. Better buckle up. It's going to be a wild ride. The story of Frankenstein, first published in 1820, written by Mary Shelley, was the first of the science fiction and horror novels genre, and a huge success. Shelley's protagonist, the hero of her story, is Dr. Frankenstein, an educated man who creates a man-like creature for the sake of advancing science. A tall, misshapen, half-human creature who has an intellect, who feels, who hurts, who questions his being and can talk and can kill. A creature that makes one feel that its creator is instantly guilty for interfering with the immutable laws of creation. And worse yet, the doctor wouldn't even give his creation a name other than creature, perhaps telling us that man in his current state of hubris was not deserving of being able to create any living thing if he wasn't able to respect it and love it. To create is to parent and to mentor. And Dr. Frankenstein, instantly regretting his creation, wanted no part of it. 20 people will read Mary Shelley's story and come back with 20 different interpretations. And that's what makes her tale so interesting. For those of you who have never read it, we're sharing it with you over at our sister podcast, 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. 
One of the best movie versions ever made was the 1931 James Whale version starring Boris Karloff as the creature. Unlike the book, the creature is brought to life in the movie by a fortuitous lightning strike, and the monster is cobbled together from stolen body parts. Mary Shelley was born Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin, born August 30th, 1797. And she became an English novelist, short story writer, dramatist, essayist, biographer, and travel writer, best known for her science fiction horror novel, Frankenstein, published in 1818. She also edited and promoted the works of her husband, the romantic poet and philosopher, Percy Bysshe Shelley. Her father was the political philosopher, William Godwin, and her mother was the philosopher and feminist, Mary Wollstonecraft. Her mother died less than a month after Mary was born, and she was raised by Godwin, who was able to provide his daughter with a rich, if informal, education, encouraging her to adhere to his own liberal political theories. In his book, Political Justice, Godwin theorized that society could be made vastly better if you could remove all the causes of stress, beginning with removing the desire for sex and placing that with intellectual pursuits like debating, writing, and chess. He reasoned that increasing technological advances would lead to a decrease in the amount of time individuals spent on production and labor, and thereby to more time spent on developing their intellectual and moral faculties. Instead of population growing exponentially, Godwin believed that this moral improvement would outrun the growth of population. Godwin pictured a social utopia where society would reach a level of sustainability and engage in what he called voluntary communism. When Mary was four, her father had married a neighbor with whom, as her stepmother, Mary came to have a troubled relationship. She'd spend much of her time alone, wandering the woods and fields that surrounded her house, and writing, or at her father's bookstore, where, in 1814, at the tender age of 17, she met one of her father's young followers, Percy Bysshe Shelley. Apparently growing quite tired with her father's rantings on abstinence and morality, Mary began a wild romance with Shelley, who was already married. They soon began a lurid sexual odyssey that began in the graveyard where her mother had recently been entombed and extended to wherever they could find a spot. He soon talked her into a voyage of discovery, as it was called then, to Europe, where, together with Mary's stepsister, Claire Claremont, Mary and Shelley left for France, surviving a wicked storm while crossing the English Channel, then traveling through Europe, stopping in a number of lodging houses along the way including a small village called Bensheim, high in the mountains of Germany. It was there, in a tavern in Bensheim, in the Odenwald mountain range, that the group was treated to the legend of nearby Frankenstein Castle, a centuries-old hilltop castle overlooking the city of Darmstadt. As the castle story goes, the castle had occupied the hilltop since the 12th century and gone through a series of changes and ownerships in the centuries following. The castle for years was and still is thought to be a site for mysterious occurrences and appearances of ghosts, especially those of the knight George von Frankenstein, Dragon Slayer, and his lady Anne-Marie Chen. 
and apparitions of witches occurring in the nearby village of Nensheim. In a remote part of the forest behind Frankenstein Castle, on 417 meter high Mount Ilbis, compasses do not work properly due to magnetic stone formations of natural origin. Local nature enthusiasts and witchcraft practitioners are said to perform rituals at these magnetic places on special occasions like Walpurgis Night or Summer Solstice. The magnetic stones can be visited by everyone, but it is advisable, they say, for present-day tourists not to disturb ongoing ritual activities by any means. Legend has it that Mount Ilbus is the second most important meeting place for witches in Germany after Mount Brocken in the Hearts. All the legends aside, it was the castle that held the most terrifying secret. In 1673, Johann Conrad Dippel came to be born in Frankenstein Castle. He was a smart boy and soon went to study theology, philosophy, and alchemy at the University of Gleisen, obtaining a master's degree in theology in 1693. He published many theological works under the name of Christianus Democritus, and most of them are still preserved. By 1700, he turned to hermetic studies and alchemy as a key to nature. The two courses of theory combined, meaning that there was an occult or hidden means by which the laws of nature could be altered. If discovered, the men who controlled these laws could hold reign over life and death. This was a controversial philosophy in that time, and Dippel gained in notoriety all across Europe. Emanuel Swedenborg was probably both his most notable supporter and later staunch critic. Swedenborg began as a disciple of Dippel, but eventually dismissed him as a most vile devil who attempted wicked things. Just what wicked things Swedenborg was accusing Dippel of were not made clear. But Dippel was eventually in prison for heresy, where he served a seven-year sentence. When he was released and now working in the lab in the castle, he created an animal oil known as Dippel's oil, which was supposed to be the equivalent to the alchemist's dream of the elixir of life. At one point, Dippel attempted to purchase Castle Frankenstein in exchange for his elixir formula, which he claimed he had recently discovered, but the offer was turned down. Dippel had obviously made some serious money selling little bottles of that elixir. There are claims that during his stay at Castle Frankenstein, Dippel practiced anatomy as well as alchemy. He was allegedly working with nitroglycerin, or a substance with similar properties, which according to legend, led to the destruction of a tower at the Castle Frankenstein. It was said that he performed gruesome experiments with cadavers in which he attempted to transfer the soul of one cadaver into another. Soul transference with cadavers was a common experiment among alchemists at the time and was a theory that Dippel supported in his writings, thus making it possible that Dippel pursued similar objectives. Dippel experimented quite frequently with dead animals as well, of which he was an avid dissector in his dissertations. In his dissertation, Maladies and Remedies of the Life of the Flesh, Dippel claims to have discovered both the elixir of life and the means to exorcise demons 
through potions he concocted from boiled animal bones and flesh. This is the same essay in which Dipple claimed to believe that souls could be transferred from one corpse to another by using a funnel. To say this guy was batshit crazy is probably an understatement. During this time, at least one local minister apparently accused Dipple of grave robbing, experimenting on cadavers, and keeping company with the devil. And that was probably where the heresy trial came in. For the most part, Dipple kept to himself and his work. He perhaps even actively perpetuated the rumors that he had sold his soul to the devil in exchange for secret knowledge, as relying on his reputation as a dark sorcerer better enabled him to find audiences with those willing to pay for his knowledge of the philosopher's stone and the elixir of life. A year before his death, he wrote a pamphlet in which he claimed to have discovered an elixir that would keep him alive until the age of 135. Footnote, he didn't make it. It was these stories that would end up woven into the pages of Mary Shelley's story in the summer of 1816. Getting back to Mary Shelley, their trip through Europe finished, they returned to England, Mary now pregnant with Percy's child. Over the next two years, she and Percy faced ostracism, constant debt, and the death of their prematurely born daughter. They married in late 1816, after the suicide of Percy Shelley's first wife, Harriet, who no doubt was driven to suicide by her husband's very much talked about public affairs. In 1816, the couple, with their new baby son, along with her stepsister, Claire Claremont, returned to Europe to spend a summer one rental villa down from that of Lord Byron and John William Polidori on Lake Geneva, Switzerland, where Mary was to conceive the idea for her novel Frankenstein. Shelley had left England for good, and the feeling was mutual. The year 1816 is known as the year without a summer because of the severe climate abnormalities that caused average global temperatures to plummet and killed crops and kept the sky dark all across the northern hemisphere. Evidence suggests that the anomaly was predominantly a volcanic winter event caused by the massive 1815 eruption of Mount Tambora in the Dutch East Indies. To add to that, the Earth had already been in a centuries-long period of global cooling that started in the 14th century. Known today as the Little Ice Age, it had already caused considerable agricultural distress all over Europe. On the shores of Lake Geneva, Mary and Percy wandered the shoreline, looking up at the sky and wondering if the sun would ever shine again. Claire had chosen Lake Geneva at the invitation of her lover, Lord Byron, and the two groups met soon after their arrival, enjoying each other's company immensely. Most nights they would gather at Lord Byron's villa to discuss politics, philosophy, and writing and share ghost stories. It proved a wet, ungenial summer, Mary Shelley remembered in 1831. An incessant rain often confined us for days to the house. Sitting around a log fire at Byron's Villa, the company amused themselves with German ghost stories, which prompted Byron to propose that they each write a ghost story. Unable to think of a story, young Mary Godwin became anxious. Have you thought of a story yet? I was asked one morning, she wrote, and each morning I was forced to reply with a mortifying negative. During one mid-June evening, the discussions turned to the nature of the principle of life. 
Perhaps a corpse would be reanimated, Mary noted. Galvanism had given token of such things. A scientist named Galvani had become famous for his frog experiments, during which he would apply an electric shock to a dead frog, and the legs would then twitch. Observers to this phenomenon were left shocked, and the process took on the name of galvanism. It was after midnight before they retired, and unable to sleep, she became possessed by her imagination as she beheld the grim terrors of her waking dream, her ghost story. In the early 19th century, corpse reanimation was a hot topic of the day. Studies and investigations into the line between life and death occupied many of the great scientific minds of the early 19th century. They had already discovered a means to resuscitate drowned people. In fact, Mary's mother had once attempted suicide by jumping from Putney Bridge into the Thames River. She was one of those brought back to life or resuscitated. This was just one of the ways in which the line between life and death were being blurred and questioned. Each year there was a procession of those raised from the dead by the Society for the Recovery of Persons Apparently Drowned, which had been established in 1774. Add to this and to Mary's story the fact that Shelley himself had a long history with scientific experiments and no doubt provided Mary with some of the imagery that went into the story. At Eton, he used a frictional electric machine to charge the door handle of his room. He once blew up a tree on the school's south meadow with gunpowder. His rooms in Oxford were fully equipped with science equipment, and he continued to experiment with electricity, magnetism, and chemicals. This interest continued into his adult life, where he had trouble with multiple landlords and hosts. His frequent experiments would often burn cushions, leave marks on the walls and floors, and disturb other residents. In their leisure time, the couple were also known to attend lectures and demonstrations that looked into the space between the known and the unknown. On that infamous night, they'd been reading German ghost stories from a French translation of the book Phantasmagoriana. These stories, combined with the unusual dark and mysterious climate, had an effect on the young writer, Shelley wrote. The season was cold and rainy, and in the evenings we crowded around a blazing wood fire and occasionally amused ourselves with some German stories of ghosts which happened to fall into our hands. These tales excited in us a playful desire of imitation. Two other friends and myself agreed to write each a story on some supernatural occurrence. In the preface to her book, Mary talked about a waking dream in which she conceived the idea of Frankenstein. When I placed my head on my pillow, I didn't sleep, nor could I be said to think. My imagination, unbidden, possessed and guided me, gifting the successive images that arose in my mind with a vividness far beyond the usual bounds of reverie. I saw, with shut eyes, but acute mental vision. I saw the pale student of unhallowed arts kneeling beside the thing he had put together. I saw the hideous phantasm of a man stretched out and then, on the working of some powerful engine, show signs of life and stir with an uneasy, half-vital motion. 
In order to capture the gothic horror found in the novel's pages, Shelley tapped into her own fears. What terrified me will terrify others, and I need only describe the specter which had haunted my midnight pillow. On the morrow, I announced that I had thought of a story. She began to create a transcript of the grim terrors of my waking dream. In the cauldron of the strange mix of events came the creation of one of the cornerstones of gothic horror and science fiction. She began writing what she assumed would be a short story. With Percy Shelley's encouragement, she expanded this tale into her first novel, Frankenstein, or The Modern Prometheus, published in 1818. She later described that summer in Switzerland as the moment when I first stepped out from childhood into life. The story of Frankenstein has been fictionalized several times and formed the basis for a number of films. We've got Mary Shelley's story Frankenstein for you at our sister podcast at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. And if you haven't searched for and downloaded this app yet, you've been missing out on a lot of great, great stories. We'll leave the link to it for both Apple users and Android users in our show notes. The story would take Mary a little over a year to finish. On their return to England in September, Mary and Percy moved with Claire Claremont, who took lodgings nearby, to Bath, where they hoped to keep Claire's pregnancy secret. At Cologne, Mary Godwin had received two letters from her half-sister, Fanny Imlay, who alluded to her unhappy life. Fanny was Mary's sister by birth. And on the 9th of October, Fanny wrote an alarming letter from Bristol that sent Percy Shelley racing off to search for her without success. On the morning of the 10th of October, Fanny Inlay was found dead in a room at the Swansea Inn, along with a suicide note and a laudanum bottle. On December 10th, Percy Shelley's wife, Harriet, was discovered drowned in the Serpentine, a lake in Hyde Park, London. Both suicides were hushed up. Harriet's family obstructed Percy Shelley's efforts, fully supported by Mary Godwin, to assume custody of his two children to Harriet. His lawyers advised him to improve his case by marrying. So he and Mary, who was pregnant again, married on December 30th, 1816, at St. Mildred's Church, Bread Street, London. Mr. and Mrs. Godwin were present, and the marriage ended the family rift. Claire Claremont gave birth to a baby girl on January 13th, at first called Alba, later Allegra. In March of that year, the Chancery Court ruled Percy Shelley morally unfit to assume custody of his children, and later placed them with a clergyman's family. Also in March, the Shelleys moved with Clare and Alba to Albion House at Marlow, Buckinghamshire, a large, damp building on the River Thames. There, Mary Shelley gave birth to her third child, Clara, on September 2nd, 1817. At Marlowe, they entertained their new friends Marianne and Lee Hunt, worked hard at their writing, and often discussed politics. Early in the summer of 1817, Mary Shelley finished Frankenstein, which was published anonymously in January of 1818. Reviewers and readers assumed that Percy Shelley was the author, since the book was published with his preface and dedicated to his political hero, William Godwin. At Marlowe, Mary edited the joint journal of the group's 1814 Continental Journey, adding material written in Switzerland in 1816, along with Percy's poem, Mont Blanc. The result was 
The History of a Six Weeks Tour, published in November of 1817. That autumn, Percy Shelley often lived away from home in London to evade creditors. The threat of debtors' prison, combined with their ill health and fears of losing custody of their children, contributed to the couple's decision to leave England for Italy in March of 1818, taking Claire Claremont and Alba with them. They had no intention of returning. Years later, Claire would write a bitter letter accusing Shelley and Lord Byron of being monsters. This came in a shocking historical find in 2010, which cast a different light on the whole group, rendering Polidori's character whitewash invalid. According to an article in The Guardian published March 2010, a Cambridge graduate had recently stumbled across an unpublished 19th century memoir penned by Claire Claremont, Mary's half-sister, that burned with resentment at Lord Byron and Percy Shelley as monsters of lying, meanness, cruelty, and treachery. Penned when she was an embittered old woman, it reveals for the first time her accusation of both poets ruining lives, including her own, in their pursuit of what she called free love and evil passion. Historians, when the news was released, hailed it as an extraordinary discovery. As the story goes, Daisy Hay was researching her first book in a New York public library when she found the manuscript, a fragment of a memoir by Claire Claremont, Mary Shelley's pretty stepsister, who was made pregnant and dumped by Byron in her teens, and whose contemporaries gossiped that she had also had a child by Shelley, that being Allegra. Historians have striven repeatedly to understand the bizarre relationship between Claremont and the Shelleys. She went with them when they eloped and lived with them throughout most of their marriage. There was also the entanglement with Byron, who virtually abandoned their illegitimate daughter, Allegra, sending her to a convent where she died at age five. As an 18-year-old, Claremont had briefly captivated Byron with her wit, intelligence, and black eyes, having flung herself at him in 1816. Byron was already famous, but married. He soon tired of Claremont, asking her to stop writing to him and refusing her access to Allegra, questioning whether the, quote, brat, end quote, was his. Claremont was in her 70s when, having worked as a governess, she wrote her memoir, releasing her bitterness through language that is eloquent but violent. With furious deletions and amendments covering the three-page manuscript, she wrote, under the influence of the doctrine and belief of free love, I saw the two first poets of England become monsters. With her memoir, she hoped to demonstrate what evil passion free love assured, what tenderness it dissolves, how it abused affections that should be the solace and balm of life into a destroying scourge. She continued, The worshippers of free love not only preyed upon one another, but also on themselves, turning their existence into a perfect hell. She felt that religion and morality of truth demanded that she describe the misconduct of the two great poets. As for Byron, he was a human tiger slaking his thirst for inflicting pain upon defenseless women. Historians had known of that memoir, but it had never been seen and was assumed lost, and news of the discovery sparked excitement. Shelley expert Professor Kelvin Everest was astonished by the find, as it differs so dramatically from Claremont's image as a staunch defender of Shelley 
until the end of her life. Sir Michael Holroyd, the eminent biographer, described the memoir as an extraordinary cry of pain, grief-stricken and vengeful, as well as extremely eloquent. It rocks you back. Dr. Hay added, Nowhere else did Claire explicitly accuse Shelley of cruelty or reveal so minutely the dark underside of romantic living. Nothing else quite like it survives. One might expect Claire to write about Byron in this manner, but her attack on Shelley is more unexpected. Hay found the memoir in a New York public library which holds the Fortzheimer Collection, one of the world's most important Shelley-related archives. It was tucked into Claremont's reworkings of her mother's letter to produce a more flattering account of her role in Shelley and Mary's elopement. Mary Shelley was a great writer, but like many great writers of her time, she was no hero, as you just heard. Neither she nor the company she kept held any keys to moral virtue, and to make things worse, she, as well as Lord Byron, Percy Shelley, and Clare, according to some, may have neglected their newborn babies to early deaths. She was an advocate of free love as much as any 60s flower child or Hollywood icon, and she had some very strange habits, one of which included keeping the heart of her husband, Shelley, who died young in a boating accident, locked in her writing desk until her death. She did have one child who survived her free lifestyle and whom she raised on her writer's income, having become a successful novelist after her book Frankenstein was published in 1818, and other, and other novels succeeded it. Her story of a monster created by an enterprising doctor whose efforts to restore life were brought about by a strange chemical cocktail was fiction scarily bordering reality in 1820, as there were doctors experimenting with this at the time. It was a byproduct of a new age in medicine which consumed institutions of medical science with the dawn of the 19th century, the dawn of medical enlightenment, and an age which included medical experimentation without any moral code of right or wrong to limit where it went. A time where propriety was cast aside by doctors whose actions were accepted as being for the common good, if they contributed to further knowledge of the human body, and possibly even to the holy grail of the medical profession, the means to restore life from death. A time in which, sadly, the bodies they worked on came from anywhere and everywhere. Her story sounds like pulp fiction written for one of the romantic novels that line today's bookshelves. Yet, it isn't. It's true, except for the dead being brought back to life. Well, I take that back. Her story and the movie versions that followed it may well have sparked the invention of life-restoring defibrillators and pacemakers, which have saved hundreds of thousands of lives by applying an electric shock to a stopped heart. Once thought of as science fiction, and now a reality for the past 80 years. Frankenstein Castle gained international attention when the sci-fi TV show Ghost Hunters International made a whole episode about the castle in 2008 and claimed that it showed significant paranormal activity. The investigators met with a Frankenstein expert who guided Rob Demarest, Andy Andrews, Brian Harnoy, and their colleague through the castle and discussed its legends and paranormal sightings. So we thought you listeners might enjoy meeting Rob Demarest and learning about just what happened on that paranormal adventure at Frankenstein Castle. 
Rob has a wealth of ghost hunting experience after dedicating more than 20 years to the cause, during which he's conducted investigations across the globe, searching for some of history's darkest characters and places, and looking for answers that can best explain paranormal activity. Rob, thanks for joining us today at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. Can you introduce yourself to our listeners and fill us in on how Frankenstein Castle came to your attention and take us through your experience there? Sure, that, that is a wonderful introduction. I wish I had recorded that. I want, I want you to introduce me on every show I do from now on, by the way. I'm this right down. Um, so, so here's what happened is that Frankenstein's Castle in Germany, when we verify that, when we talk about the history of the castle, in which these experiments were said to be being conducted, we're talking about Dr. Frankenstein because his his was not so much research up to create said monster, but to discover the key to immortality. Now, for whatever reason, the, the castle itself is said to be haunted by a number of spirits, including the doctor himself. Um, now, when I hear these stories, I, I kind of have to nod. It's like the movie Ghostbusters, we're here to leave you. So when I heard that the castle was haunted by the spirit of a flying dragon, <laughs> it'll seem to believe it, but I nodded and went along with it. There is also a woman who is said to walk up the hill from the town to the top of the top tower once a year, fully naked. So you're hearing some of these stories and you're saying, huh. This is a little more than I expected. Let's, let's hear more about Dr. Frankenstein. Well, as, as the history was told to us that Dr. Frankenstein was attempting to find the elixir of life, um, and, and not to find it, you know, as we would say that they, the, the Spanish explorers looked in Florida for the fountain of youth, he was trying to develop it. And unfortunately, the, 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 you know, there's a couple stories, but the story that seems to have the most believability is he wound up poisoning himself, trying his own concoctions. So we went in to see if there was anything that would suggest that there is legitimate paranormal activity at the Castle Frankenstein itself. Um, we were able to capture a number of EVP, and for those not familiar, EVP is electronic voice phenomenon. This is where we use digital or analog tape recorders and try and capture, we ask questions, and sometimes when you listen to the tape back, there are answers to these questions. Well, in this particular case, the tricky part came in because not only did the answers come in in German, but they came in in old German. Huh. So this is not a dialect that, that, you know, even if we brought it to, say, you know, the, the front desk at the hotel, um, someone who spoke perfect German, they would not understand it the same way that we wouldn't, you know, it would be very difficult for us to understand Shakespearean English. Mm -hmm. So luckily, uh, the person who had invited us in for the case was able to um, translate and some have called his translations into question, but, I, you know, he was the only authority we had present. And he said that, that many of the, um, it was all in male voices, so the naked woman wasn't there, and I assume the dragon wasn't speaking to us in old German. So you could say that the possibility exists that, that this is a voice of Dr. Frankenstein. Well, the messages that he had for us were, were fairly straightforward and unfortunately fairly typical of a paranormal investigation that, that he told us to go away. 
He told us to get out. He told us to leave them alone. Um, so we did have documented paranormal activity at the location. And for people who have not visited the castle, um, I think people would picture this Cinderella-esque, you know, perhaps a little grayer, gigantic monolith standing in front of them. It's basically in ruins. Um, there's only really one major tower remaining that you can go to the top of. Um, so we checked there. We checked the church. Now, ironically, the, the spirit of Dr. Frankenstein has been seen, but not on the castle grounds, um, on the hill, walking down the hill leading away from the castle. Now, this is what we would refer to generally as a residual haunt, meaning that you could not interact with him if you saw him. He wouldn't see you. You wouldn't see him. It's just kind of a loop repeating itself. We didn't experience any of that. Unfortunately, we did have investigators. Um, we actually had Josh Gates from Sci-Fi's Destination Truth with us at the time. He went down there. He looked around, um, but no appearance of said doctor. Now, I understand that in the woods uh, behind the castle, there's a, there's a sort of a magnetic disturbance. Did you know anything about that? And they also hold witches' covens there apparently uh, once a year. That, that would not surprise me in the slightest. Um, it, it also depends what type of EMF you are looking for, um, electromagnetic field fluctuation. Because if you are looking for, you know, not to get too technical, but if you're looking, looking for between 50 and 60 kilohertz, that's a man-made, man-made range. So it's very possible if that's what you're looking for that you could pick that up from cell phone towers nearby I mean, keep in mind, this isn't hundreds of years ago. There, you're, you're getting signals that would not have been present, um, mm -hmm. radio signals, microwave signals, um, all different kinds of signals. Now, we, on the other hand, we're looking for uh, natural tri-field readings. You know, one example is the Earth itself gives off a very minor uh, EMF reading, as does our own heartbeat. It has an electrical, a slight electrical charge. So we did look for that, um, including there, there's two main areas of the woods. There's the woods leading down towards the town, and there's woods uh, that lead away from the castle down towards an outbuilding on the other side. Um, we did have slight electromagnetic fluctuations, but nothing that would really say this is definitive proof of the paranormal. Now, as far as... The, a, a witch's coven goes. I, I you know, I, I don't, I'm, I'm a Christian. I don't practice Wiccan. I have all respect for all religions um, and their practitioners, but I don't know, you know, that wasn't information that was made privy to us, but I, I'm left wondering if the possibility isn't that um, it, it seems like a very Gothic place. You know, I've also investigated uh, Vlad Tapish's, fortress in Romania, a.k.a. Dracula's castle, um, and that, I know, is also a huge draw for people who are fans of the Twilight Saga and that sort of thing. So I don't want to demean um, any Wiccan people who are out there, but I think the possibility exists that the name value alone is what is what might inspire them to gather there. So did the crew get anything out of Frankenstein Castle? Did you feel like there was something there? Yes, I did. You know, the voices we captured were using digital, and, and, and the debate over electronic voice phenomenon has been going on for 
at least a hundred years um, about why it would happen, how it would happen. Um, is it something we're misinterpreting? However, the, the idea that we were capturing radio signals did not validate. It didn't mix with, because the, the responses we were getting were in responses to the question. So, for example, if we were picking up a radio signal, it should have been, which, which our microphones wouldn't have, but if they had, it would have been one ongoing signal. It would not be ask a question and then a response. It would go right over the top of our voices, which it didn't. So there definitely seems to be paranormal activity at Frankenstein's castle. Um, whether it's the doctor or obviously, you know, this, he did not live there alone. This was a large castle in its, in its prime. Um, it could have been any number of people who, who visited or lived there. Um, I think that one of the interesting things is they say that the, the activity is, is concentrated in the one tower. Well, it seems ironic that the activity is concentrated in the tower that is the most stable and remaining. Um, it, it just seems a little convenient to me that they would say, oh, it's all in the one tower that still exists. Because mm -hmm. we, There's also, like I said, there's a church on the grounds, which we investigated, we looked for. Um, it was the first time we used an ultrasound device. So we were listening not to the human hearing range, but to the ultrasonic frequencies which we picked up and we said, hooray, we have something amazing and a breakthrough. Unfortunately, that turned out to be the sounds of bats, um, <laughs> yeah. which are present in and around the church itself. So is there, was there activity there? Yes. Um, enough that we deemed it a haunted location. We tried to be very stringent on Ghost Hunters International in giving out that title. Because keeping in mind, we're there for a very limited amount of time. People you know, study these places for decades we were there for one evening. Actually, I believe it was two. Um, and we were able to capture enough that seemed to say that, you know, paranormal just seems, just means besides or beyond the normal. And there was activity there that was besides or beyond the normal. I heard, I think I read that you heard the word Arbo, maybe uh, a knight named yes. Arbogast. Yes, that is correct. Now, he is the knight who is said to have defeated the dragon. And his spirit is also said to be present in and around the grounds. When your crew goes in, do they stay for the evening? Do you guys bring your own food in and everything else and, and stay overnight? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, overnight, um, we had a producer, and this is a side story, but, it, but it's an illuminating one, pardon the pun. And I would go to him at times on some locations, this not being one of them, and say, listen, it's four in the morning. We, we haven't gotten anything. Um, I think it's time to wrap it up. And he said, well, listen, Rob, I have a rule. If we haven't found anything, then we should keep trying just in case. And I said, well, what if we find anything? He says, well, then there's clearly activity and we should keep going. So, so his rule was no matter what is happening, you are going to stay until that sun comes up. Um, we also arrive you know, because we have to do the interview and the walkthrough, we don't go from sundown to sun up. We go there from about noon until probably 6 a.m. Mm -hmm. So we're there a good 12 hours. What's that part of Germany like? Uh, what are those, what is that forest like? And what was that whole region all about? I've never been to Darnstadt, so I'm kind of curious. Yeah, if wonderful. any of our listeners go there, uh, is it the kind of place they'd want to 
visit and maybe yes, visit absolutely the it would be I, I had a fantastic time there I, I must admit that I went in with a bias um, I think because of you know I'll be I'll be quite frank because of historical reason rationale and reasons I think that um, a lot of parts of Germany have been painted as and the German people is very stoic and gruff um, and and that was anything but the case the people were friendly they were welcoming they, they were gracious um, they really, I, I've investigated a few locations in Germany, in fact, two castles in Germany, um, Frankenstein's castle being one of them, and everywhere we went in that area, not only was beautiful, but the people were incredibly welcoming. Did you ever go to Hitler's bunker? Yes, I did. I, I um, if you remember the Tom Cruise movie where about the attempted assassination yes. on Hitler, I stood right where the bomb blast went off. Um, and it was actually an interesting thing. Wolf Shanza, or in English, the Wolf's Lair, they, they did something that was quite ingenious. They knew that people would be looking for this, this hideout. So they put it up in the hills, and what they did is they put moss and soil on top of every building and made them flat. Then they transplanted and grew shrubbery and trees on top of the buildings so that it couldn't be seen, the location couldn't be seen from overhead. Mm. Um, and it, it, it's incredible. It was built despite um, what, what happened was when the Russians came in after the war or towards the end of the war, I should say, um, what they did was they said, we're, we're just going to, you know, detonate this thing. We're going to level this monstrosity. And it was so well constructed. It was such solid concrete that they had no success in trying to take it down. Wow. And, and by it still this this incredible large encampment today. Is there anything you can add to the Frankenstein castle uh, paranormal haunt? And if not, then uh, can we move to, you said you had done the location where Mary Shelley had written her short story. By that, did you mean the villa on Lake Geneva? Yes, I did indeed. In fact, um, I did not investigate there. However, now if you've ever seen pictures of the villa, it's beautiful. Um, it's absolutely incredible. It, it has a giant field sloping downwards overlooking Lake Geneva. And I actually stayed a summer um, probably an eighth of a mile away from the villa. Um, and so I was able to you know, go past the villa many times and, and, and wonder about evening that transpired there. But unfortunately, it's privately owned and they have no interest in, in anyone um, doing an investigation there. You can understand that you would draw in a, a large number of tourists and, you know, they just prefer to enjoy their views of the lake instead of having people try and sneak in and steal a stone off the haunted house. Mm -hmm. and, and it's just an incredible area of Switzerland. You know, I mean, I've stayed a couple summers in, in and around Lake Geneva, and except for the pricing, you know, if you want to go grab a sandwich, you know, you better bring around, bring your, your, you know, Visa Platinum card because it is not an inexpensive place, but it is gorgeous. I thank you very much. In fact, I'd like to do a whole episode just based on, on your uh, experience uh, with Paranormal. We didn't even get to my search for Hitler in Argentina. So from that point on, the interview actually gathered steam, and we collected almost an hour of Rob's international ghost-busting exploits, which I think you're going to find very, very fascinating. 
Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. We appreciate your being with us and want to invite you to subscribe to our show if you haven't already done so. 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast is heard and enjoyed worldwide by our growing network of fans. And we enjoy hearing from you at facebook.com forward slash 1001 Heroes and Twitter address at 1001 Podcast. Or you can email us at 1001storiespodcast at gmail.com. We thank you for supporting our sponsors. That's a big deal. And we do need you going to those websites and supporting us to stay alive as a program. provides more than just the right parts for your repair. Our professional